Our second scripture reading is just as Meredith shared and Galen shared from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, Go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you, author- given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the Spirit submits to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. I've been thinking a lot about food this week, and it's not just because I'm looking forward to grilling out tomorrow for the 4th of July. Last week, I was asked to be the pastor in residence for a camp at Maryville College for high school students called Maryville Adventures in Studying Theology, or MAST for short. And the camp is exactly as it sounds, a week for these students to explore their faith and to be challenged to think theologically about the world around them. The theme of the week, fittingly, was the food and soul, how food has shaped the faith we share. So while preparing two sermons for their opening and closing worship services and two Bible studies for the group and sitting around tables to eat the food that the high schoolers themselves prepared and celebrating the Lord's Supper several times, I've had a lot of time to think about food and faith and community. And through it all, the one thought that kept coming to mind was, thank goodness I'm not a picky eater. Don't get me wrong, the food was great, but some of it was a little adventurous. 
So it was good that I'm not afraid to try new things and that I'm not very picky, but I know some of you are. In fact, one or two of you may reside in my house. (laughs) And if we adventurous eaters pass you on the street, we'd never know of your pickiness. But if you get invited for a meal or sit down with a group at a restaurant, the quirks begin to emerge. Over the years, I've learned that there are many reasons one might be discerning when it comes to food. For instance, some of you are put off by texture, while for others, it might be the look or the smell. Oysters are too slimy. Calamari is too chewy. Cabbage smells funny. Peas are mushy. Liver is just, well, and I'll give you this one, it's liver. Even as I speak, some of you are getting elbowed in the ribs by a loved one saying, see, see? For me, there are few things, there are a few things that I do struggle myself to get down, and coconut is one. I've decided, though, it's completely a texture thing. The flavor is fine, and I actually enjoy it, but it's the chewy, crunchy, fingernail-like feel that's an absolute nightmare. And I know some finicky eaters will not eat foods that have touched each other on the plate, or they insist on finishing one item entirely before starting the next. Others refuse to eat anything with their hands, like a sandwich or pizza or potato chips. And I learned this week that there are even websites that host support groups for picky eaters. I have a pastor friend named Drew who says that he's not proud of his selective eating, as he puts it. He always says that he wishes for it to be different. As a pastor, he's often offered by congregants beautiful homegrown tomatoes coming fresh out of the garden off the vine this time every year. And he really, really wants to like them. But just slicing into, into a tomato triggers a deep-seated gag reflex in him. He knows how delicious most of us think they are. People tell him all the time that if he would just try one, he'd be convinced. But he just can't do it. He told me once, just thinking of it thinking of it, just think of it as me leaving more tomatoes for the rest of you who really do like them. And Drew is not alone. Some years ago, while serving at a previous church, I was sitting around a table with a dinner party, and someone mentioned something about tomatoes and how she really wasn't a fan. Oh, she said, I just can't stand them. And I asked her what the issue was for her. Was it the seeds or the sliminess? Neither, she said. I just can't eat food that's round. (laughs) Let me assure you, this morning's scripture reading is about more than just Jesus rebuking picky eaters. Eat whatever's set before you, he says. And it's not a matter of nutrition, nor is it about starving populations around the world, even though I'd gladly send them all the coconut that I'm offered. (laughs) Up to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been in the region of Galilee preaching and teaching and healing. But near the end of the ninth chapter, things begin to change. 
If you were with us at our worship service at Lakeshore last Sunday, you would have heard Luke's words, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. I mentioned that this one phrase opens a major section referred to as the travel narrative. Jesus turns the corner and sets his sights on Jerusalem where he will be crucified. In practical terms, what that means is that time is of the essence. There's work still to be done and very few days in which to do it. So Jesus lines up 70 of his followers and charges them to carry on the mission. The instructions are clear. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. In other words, he says, travel light. Some of that is purely logistical. The more stuff you have, the slower you travel, and the more energy you have to spend on keeping up with all of your stuff. But it's also an issue of hospitality. To carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, puts you in a position where all you can do is receive what your hosts have to offer, and to receive it open-handedly and graciously. At a conference in college, I remember hearing about a pastor who traveled to India. It was a three-week trip sponsored by his denomination to learn about the church in that part of the world. I don't know that he was a picky eater per se, but the story was told that in addition to his clothes and a camera and toiletries and everything else he would need, he packed an extra suitcase full of 70 pounds of food, cans of Pringles, cheese crackers, granola bars, jars of peanut butter, and he didn't take all of that to share with the people he would meet. He took it because he was terrified that if he ate the food his hosts offered him, he would get sick. Guess what? He didn't get sick. But what kind of message do you suppose that sent to the people he met? Our stuff is better than your stuff. I don't trust you. I'm afraid of you. Disciples, Jesus says, are to be utterly dependent on God and the hospitality of others. Disciples are to carry only the gospel and our trust in God. But hidden in Jesus' words is another matter that I think is even broader than that. I believe that traveling light is a theological issue. To carry no purse, no bag, no sandals is to trust that God has been at work long before we ever arrive on the scene. Terence Fretheim makes that point in his commentary on this passage. Our task, he says, our task is to name the God who's been involved in people's lives before we show up with the Bible in our hands. We do not bring God anywhere. We go where God has already been long at work. Missionaries from Europe and North America learned that early on. Some went into what, where, where, what were considered dark continents to convert and to civilize those that they met. 
They forced non-English speakers to sing traditional European hymns and to don shirts with ties for worship and train them in what Westerners would consider useful occupations, like housework, which were of no benefit to those cultures at all. The work of those missionaries in most instances turned out to be a dismal failure. But other missionaries took a different approach. They went to unknown places and learned from the people who were there. They asked questions and they listened and they discovered that God had been present long before they ever arrived on the scene. As a result, Christianity in those places doesn't look like anything at all like what happens here in this place on Sunday morning. Instead, it's a beautiful mixture of indigenous culture with the eternal truth of the gospel that gets manifested in ways that people in that particular culture can understand. Let me tell you why all of that matters. 50 and 60 and 70 years ago, all you had to do in this country was hang a sign outside saying that you have church on Sunday at 11 o'clock and come Sunday, the building was full. We know that's no longer the case. I expect you've heard the findings of the Pew Research Forum on religion and public life from a couple of years ago. It talks about the rise of the nuns, not nuns in the Catholic sense, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. The nuns are the people who, when they fill out some form that asks what religion they are, they check none. More than a quarter of the U.S. population and a third of young adults under the age of 30 are religiously unaffiliated. That's the highest percentage ever in research polling. These are not people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. These are not seekers who just haven't found the faith that works for them yet. 88% say they're not even interested in looking. They're just none. In response, the Presbyterian Church USA has tried different ways to address this trend. You may have heard a few years ago that our General Assembly launched the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Initiative. In the first year alone, there were over 100 new worshiping communities started. They ranged from a coffee house in Warner Robins, Georgia, to a gathering of restaurant workers in Portland, to a group of endurance athletes in Louisville who dubbed themselves Team Sweaty Sheep. Our presbytery even started some of those. One was in the south side area of Chattanooga to reach out to the artsy, sort of off-the-beat community there. Some of these communities were successful, some were not. But the one thing that they all had in common is this. In every instance, the organizers went in and discovered what God was already doing in those places, how the Spirit was already on the move. We do not bring God anywhere, Fretheim says. We go where God has long been at work. Brad Schmeling is a Lutheran pastor who was the preacher at a conference in Montreat that I went to a few years ago. 
In one of his sermons, Brad told a story from before he became a pastor when he worked as a correspondent for a local NPR station. One of the assignments he drew was to cover a jigsaw puzzle championship in his hometown. Brad went to the tournament and talked to several, uh, several contestants about their strategies. Donna, a 10th grader, won the competition by completing a 500-piece puzzle in an hour and 13 minutes. Donna says that she looks for pieces with similar colors and shapes. Another contestant, though, says that he always takes one puzzle piece and slips it into his pocket. When he can't find what he's looking for on the table, he figures the piece is in his pocket. Brad said that struck a chord with him. Don't, make, don't take much with you, he said. That place you're going already has what you need. Be flexible. Be gracious. Settle into your context. Eat their food before offering yours. In other words, before you go into a situation where you think you have all the answers, where you think you know exactly what someone else needs to do, where you think you have all the solutions to the problems, you may want to think again. It just may be that the critical piece of the puzzle is in the pocket of someone else. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says, but the workers are few. The harvest is already bearing fruit. Our job is not to bury the seeds, but to water, to tend, to stake up those wayward tomato plants, to participate in what God has already done in the world around us. So eat what's set before you, like this simple meal with the bread and the cup, hosted by none other than Jesus himself. Jesus has gone before us. And so there is no place, no territory, no field or office or laboratory or classroom or playground or trail that's off limits to God. The trailblazing has already been done. Our job is just to go without a lot of baggage and without any excuses. To go with gratitude for all that's set before us. To go knowing that God is waiting to meet us there. May that ever be so. Amen.